Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing grace. We thank you that you've, in all our mess, in all our mistakes, in all our wrong attitudes, in all our pride, in all our rebellion, your grace is always the same. And the love you have towards us is unconditional. And we thank you for that. And we thank you that we've been set free for those that through faith have put their trust in Jesus and have been made children of God. We are no longer a slave, but God's child. And we thank you for that. And that you want to increasingly set us free, increasingly give us the freedom and the joy of being your children as we let go of the things of this world and the things that are not of you and say yes to you. You set us free and we thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen. So 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrong, record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. When completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put, away, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these, are, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Thank you, Shannon. Um, so we're, it's a very famous passage, and I'm just going to give a little introduction, then hand over to Tim. The um, passage is often read at weddings, and it kind of gives us a warm feeling, right? The original context is a church that's fighting um, and doing a really bad job at accepting people that are different from them. And Paul says to this church, you need to learn to love one another. So it's actually a slap in the face. The Corinthians were not a loving church. And Paul says, I'm going to have to teach you about love. So it's not, it's not actually to give us a warm feeling. It's actually to give us a, an arresting feeling of, <gasps> we are full of pride and division and all the things the Corinthian church were. Now, I won't go into it all, but just if you want to think about how the passage flows, verses 1 to 3, the priority of love. Love is greater than any spiritual gift you have. The priority of love, because you can speak and do all these amazing things, but if you haven't got love, it doesn't matter. So verses 1 to 3, the priority of love. It's it's more important than anything else in this world. Verses uh, 4 to 6, the beauty of love. Love is patient, love is kind, and it's this beautiful description of love, which actually ends up as a description of Jesus. 
full of grace and truth. Grace, love is patient, love is kind, but full of truth. It does not delight in evil. and It's pure and it's, it's, uh, it rejoices in the truth. So the priority of love, the beauty of love, but then Paul, and this is where we're going to spend today, the, permanent, the permanence of love. Love is forever. Paul says, you see there in verse 10, when completeness comes. We live in a world now that is not complete. Lots of things are wrong. Sin and uh, the curse of God on our world through to our rebellion uh, causes suffering and disease and, and uh, disordered desires and all kinds of things that are just not right about our world. We're not complete. We, we fight. We, we are full of envy and strife and pride and all the things the Corinthians were. But God says one day completion will come. When Jesus returns and everything in our hearts and everything in this world will be healed and freedom that we know him a little bit of will be complete and the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So one day, the things that are not right with this world will one day be right. It'll be complete. And then Paul says, so spiritual gifts will cease. We won't need tongues and prophecy and everything else because we'll live in the presence of God. He also says, faith will cease. We won't need faith because we'll have sight. We'll see God. We won't need to have faith in Jesus. We'll see Jesus. So faith disappears. Spiritual gifts disappear. Hope will disappear because we won't be waiting for anything anymore. Hope will give way to reality. And the reality will be wonderful. So gifts will cease. We'll be in the presence of God. Faith will cease because we'll have the sight of Christ himself. We won't need faith. Hope will give way to reality. But love remains forever. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are loving one another, and we get to join that love, and that will continue forever. And so the focus of today is, well, we know in part, one day we will know fully. We see God as in a poor reflection in a mirror, our faith in who God is. We haven't got it all figured out. One day we'll know him fully. But look at the end of verse 12 with me. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So whilst I don't know everything in this world, I can be assured and confident that God knows me fully. And David famously wrote Psalm 139, that God knows everything about us, what's going to happen tomorrow, what's happened yesterday, what we sit and when we rise, or our thoughts, he knows everything. So whilst we cannot understand all the complexities and confusion of this world and the suffering and the challenges and all the things that don't quite work out for us, we can be assured that God knows us fully and loves us fully. And so we're going to think about this idea of being known fully, not around spiritual gifts, which we'll come back to next week, but around the area of LGBT and how as a church we can learn to grow in our acceptance and love of those in the LGBT community the Corinthian church are making a mess at loving different types of people in their day. This is an area historically the church has not done a good job in. And so for us as a church community, how can we grow in loving and welcoming and caring for those with same-sex attraction? And how can we make sure we practice the love that Paul talked about here, full of grace and truth, towards them? And then for all of us individually, all of us have a broken sexuality of some kind. None of us have this, uh, you know, all our sexual desires and our sexual practice is pure in the way God wants it to be. So how can we learn to live, as Paul says, with faith, hope, and love? How can we live in this incomplete world, waiting for completeness, with faith, hope, and love? Particularly for those whose choice means they have to remain single 
and celibate? What does faith, hope, and love look like for them? And to help us do that, Tim's going to come and share his story of being fully known and what faith, hope, and love has looked like for him. And as you hear Tim's story, there's going to be a lot of emotion, I'm sure, conjured up for you. There'll be lots of sympathy, which is really good. But I want you to focus not just on Tim's story, but on how Tim's story is part of what God is doing in our world and how God's grace and faithfulness is interacting with all our lives. So this becomes a word for all of us about faith, hope, and love. This isn't just Tim's testimony. This is a testimony to God and a word of encouragement to us all. So I'm going to hand over to Tim, and then afterwards we're going to do a Q&A. So Tim, do you want to come up, and I'll pray as you come to, to share. Father, we thank you for 1 Corinthians 13, this amazing passage that ends with faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And I pray you'd pour out your spirit on Tim to give him a freedom and a confidence as he shares, and pour out your spirit on us to give us an openness to hear your voice. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, thanks, Steve. <clears throat> I turned uh, 32 days ago, 17. Uh, yeah, and they say age is just a number. It doesn't define you. And I hope that is true because I, I truly don't feel 30. But I guess Steve kind of hinted at it. What I'm going to share today is about something um, that for so long in my life has threatened uh, to, to, to define me. Um, I've had this conversation a few times over the last few years. Sometimes it's been very complicated and taken me a long time. Other times it's been mercifully brief. <laughs> and today, <laughs> I guess, it's going to be mercifully brief in some ways. Um, I'm going to share with you my struggle to be known. And that journey has been particularly difficult for me, I think, because I am gay or same-sex attractive. There's kind of two different ways people like to use that word. Um, and that's something, you know, I'm happy with either of those, those, um, th those uh, I can't think of the word, definitions. definitions. Um, but this hasn't always been something that I've been able to express or share, and that's what I aim to, aim to do today, to share and to be known. I think in the next 25 minutes or so, hopefully, <laughs> as I share my story, you're going to experience a range of emotions. Today is such a privilege for me, as it is such a rare thing to be given a platform to share my story, my life. Um, and it is such a privilege. There's so many faces here that have supported me so much, either fully knowing me or not. Um, but I don't want my story and the emotional side of that to dominate today. My story is not about me. It is the story of God, how much he loves me, his grace towards me, how he has used my circumstances to bring... <laughs> to bring me closer to him, how he's drawn me into real and authentic relationship with him. He has shattered my self-reliance, my arrogance, my pride, and against all odds, <laughs> sorry, um, and against all odds, he has called me his son, who he's proud of. He, be he knows me better than I know myself, and he has accepted me, and he knows me as his son. For me, um, I'm gonna start with some poetry, because for me, and my poetry, so I should clarify, because that can convey in a way that maybe prose can't or written down can't. This poem is titled Known, and it covers a huge amount of my struggles, my frustrations, my misunderstandings, and the impact that all of these have had on me growing up and still have on me today. So it's called Known. An innocent child condemned by the hypocrisy of a hollow grace that took generations of fear and misunderstanding to create. A child disfigured by this poisonous theology, 
one that abandoned love and embraced hate. A child forced to retreat into the darkness until he purged the secret perversion that existed deep within. A child who'd stolen, and instead this boy forced to become a warrior against his own unforgivable sin. A child starved of hope. My voice sounds so high. And made to believe his debt was the only one that could not be paid. A son stripped of his inheritance, taught that love did fail, and that grace could be betrayed. Just a boy to be erased, another nameless victim in this crusade of hate. But this child of God is no longer controlled by shame, and I refuse for that to be my fate. Consider this my reawakening. I cannot be erased, and I will not be denied. This is an anthem of celebration. (laughs) I am no mistake, and I will no longer hide. This scarred warrior is emerging from the shadows with a righteous rage that cannot be contained. God will judge those who cause this child to stumble, for their hands are blood-stained. I will be known, and my inheritance is secure. It was never yours to withhold. My hope restored as my scarred beauty is revealed and my glorious story is told. Known. Final line again. I will be known and my inheritance is secure. It was never yours to withhold. My hope restored as my scarred beauty is revealed and my glorious story is told. And that is why today is such a privilege for me. A chance to tell my story and in doing so revealing God's grace and his infinite goodness to me and to everyone. Growing up was rough, perhaps unsurprisingly, having just heard that. At age 12, 13, I guess, when everyone else was uh, at a similar age of kind of hitting puberty, I guess I realized I was gay. Um, and in that, you know, everyone else was talking about fancy and uh, people of the opposite sex, and I, I just didn't do, do that. Uh, but I suppressed it. And at that age, I chose to survive, and I buried that part of me. And no child should ever have to make that choice. I had deep shame and guilt as I grew up believing that to be gay was the worst thing you could be, unforgivable. Um, I was warped by these teachings as I grew up. I was an innocent child condemned by the hypocrisy of a hollow grace that took generations of fear and misunderstanding to create. A child disfigured by this poisonous theology, one that abandoned love and embraced hate. That's what I was. So I I had to make a plan. I, I made what I thought was a simple plan, a plan to survive. What was going to happen is I was going to find the perfect girl, the most beautiful girl that I was attracted to, and all would be perfect. I would just magically not be gay. (laughs) And in some ways, that protected me, um, in that I did believe that that might happen. And so being gay wasn't something that completely dominated or defined me in these formative years. I did have misplaced hope, but even misplaced hope can be very powerful. Perhaps unsurprisingly, that didn't happen. Try as I might, I couldn't conjure up that magical attraction. I made mistakes, I hurt people, and I realized that my plan wasn't going to work. My next plan was short-lived, but basically involved ignoring the issue, suppressing it even further, and never telling a soul. Just dedicating myself to work or missionary work or something, but just just never telling anyone. That was my next plan. Uh, This lasted about six months, and I realized that that was completely unsustainable. I realized I needed to face this issue. So I started to read and research into this area. And the first book I read regarding this was called Washed and Waiting. This is it here by Wesley Hill, Reflections of Christian Faithfulness and Homosexuality. And let me quote from it. This is Wesley talking. 
of the author. I want to contribute in some small way to breaking the silence that persists in many churches. It is no secret that a large number of gay Christians feel frightened by the thought of sharing the story of their sexuality with their fellow believers. I hope that this book may encourage other gay and lesbian Christians to take the risky step of opening up their lives to others in the body of Christ. In doing so, they may find, as I have by grace, that being known is spiritually healthier than remaining behind closed doors, that the light is better than the darkness. So I probably read that, I don't know, when I was 23, so as you know, two days ago to 30, so six, seven years ago. And that line, or that moment, had always struck me. From the moment I read it, around the power of being known. And I was always in awe of that. So I took that advice a few years ago. I went to Steve, and I came out to him. And he would be one of the people who had that not brief, brief, uh, mercifully brief conversation. I think it took me about two hours to finally get to what I wanted to say. But Steve listened carefully and compassionately to me, and then he gave me some further great advice to, to add to that, and he told me to go to counseling, uh, which I agreed to do. Going to counseling did two amazing things um, for me. Number one, it forced me to form my own beliefs. Uh, there are so many opinions and ideas in this arena, and so much has been written and shared by Christians on both sides of the debate. Those that believe God blesses gay relationships and those that believe the traditional understanding of marriage is being reserved for a man and a woman. I went through a period where I devoured any book on the topic I could get my hands on, from authors passionately arguing both sides. And two things happened for me. I got a vision for, for marriage and I got a vision for friendship. I caught a vision of marriage that spoke to me of the need for it to be between a man and a woman, that the uniqueness of the different genders actually mattered. And um, I guess, the, you know, I caught this vision, and, and I guess if you're trying to describe something that you've seen, sometimes it can be very difficult to be able to relay that. And that's true. I just caught this vision of marriage, and I just knew in my heart that for me it was true. And now I'm still at the stage where I can't necessarily always describe what it, what it is that I caught, but there's somebody that can, and I'm going to read from him, because I think he can say it in a lot better way than I can, because, like I say, I guess it's difficult to requote a, a vision. So this is Sam Albury, and he has a book called Is God Anti-Gay? And he says this, and this is what the vision I guess I caught for marriage, or part of it. Human marriage is not just meant to reflect something of God's nature. It is also meant to reflect the grace that show, God shows to his people in Christ. And then he goes on to scripture. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Ephesians 5 verse 31. Paul is saying that marriage is about the relationship Jesus has with the church. It, too, is a union between two different yet complementary entities. The church is not the same as Christ, and Christ is not the same as the church. And it is because Christ is different to his people that he is able to draw them to himself, pledge himself to them, and have them be united to him. Human marriage is a reflection of this supreme heavenly marriage between Christ and and his people. If I was to pursue a sexual relationship or marriage with someone of the same gender as myself, then our sameness would not reflect this supreme heavenly marriage between Christ and his people. Marriage is a precious and incredible mystery that is just a foretaste of the union God's people will experience in heaven as we are fully united as one with Christ. For me, in my, in everything I believe in that is that, you know, the uniqueness of the different genders matters. 
This vision, I guess, I caught for marriage, though, doesn't make my life any easier. <laughs> I would love it if there was no controversy over this. Um, I would love it if I felt God blessed me to be in a same-sex marriage. Sometimes I kind of say I'm same-sex attracted or I'm gay, and I think that can come across maybe as sterile. I think, you know, for me to be gay means that I would love to have a man that I could love, that could care for me, to be intimate with, someone that would protect me, someone that I could raise a family with. That, that is my desires. That's what I want. And I don't feel that God blesses that, you know? But I just don't want you to miss that point. I don't want it to become sterile. That is what it means for me to be gay. I've mourned this loss, but I truly believe that God doesn't bless me in that pursuit. And I fully believe in God's goodness to me. I don't want to enter into any relationship, even if it's a friendship or anything, that would diminish my relationship with God or leave me missing out. And I truly do believe in his goodness to me. So where does that leave me and many others like me in my exact position or who are single for a whole variety of reasons? Thankfully, God has a vision for friendship and he understands the need for all of us to be in community. God does not want anyone to be alone. Whilst for many, romantic relationships will meet some of this need, we all need friends, we all need community, single people especially, regardless of the reason that you're single. I'm so privileged to look around this room and see so much community, people that have chosen to stick by me through thick and thin, people that love me enough to challenge me, to change me, and at times just hang out with me when that is all I need. I do not need sex in this life to be fulfilled. Jesus was the ultimate human, and he was a virgin when he died, but he was also the most complete and fulfilled human to ever walk this earth because of his community and his, uh, yeah, with, with God. So, yeah, um, it helped me catch this vision for marriage. It helped me catch this vision for friendship. Secondly, in counseling, I had, to I had to process my suppressed emotions and what it actually meant to acknowledge to myself, to God, and to others that I was gay. This was raw. This was painful. <laughs> I had deep, festering wounds of toxic, toxic feelings and beliefs about myself and others that had to be opened up and allowed to heal. It was hard. It was painful. But ultimately, it was healing. By suppressing this part of my identity for so long, all of me suffered. I retreated. I became dull, numb, disenchanted, disengaged. I, so, I lost so much of myself because you can't suppress one part of you without the whole of you suffering. It just, suffering. It just isn't possible. I was a child forced to retreat into the darkness until he purged the secret perversion that existed deep within child had stolen and instead this boy forced to become a warrior against his own unforgivable sin. I chose to survive, to suppress. I retreated and I tried in total darkness to deal with this and that's impossible. By opening this wound I gradually became more and more alive and it was an exciting time for me being in the counselling. I started to rediscover things that I had once enjoyed. I started to get passionate. I even started to get into arguments, and I was loving it. I just had that passion again, and it was amazing. I was able to express myself again. One thing I had done since my teens was write poetry. And over the years, in, in kind of this deep suppression, I couldn't express myself in, in poetry or writing. And I was dry in that sense probably for about four or five years, no matter how hard I tried. Uh, but one night, in the middle of this very healing but very painful and raw and deep process, 
all of my emotions came bubbling to the surface. I remember weeping in my bedroom, crying out to God that this was not fair, that I was not less for a choice I did not make. And I started writing. This is the poem that came out of that night. I'm going to read it to you now. I know from feedback that this can be emotionally overwhelming, but I promise you there's a lot of hope in this. But you need to bear with me as I draw that hope out for you. So it's called Less. You have planted a desire deep within me that I am forbidden to pursue, that my dreams of intimacy, love, and fatherhood will never come true. You have condemned me to never know love because you define it as lust, that my purest expression of love is forbidden because it fills you with disgust. But I did not make this choice. You are the one who forged me. Why do I feel such shame when it is you who gave me this warped identity? Defined by a desire I cannot control, a curse that I cannot break, that somehow I am less for a choice I did not make. How dare you burden me with this unrelenting misery? How can you demand that I honor you when you have cursed me? You have abandoned me to a battle that can never be won. How can I make sense of a father who cursed his own son? And I, I realize that this is heavy. Uh, I do realize that. But that is what I felt at the time. And for me, it was such a beautiful release to be writing again. And I don't think I've ever felt as close to God as I did when I wrote that. Mm. Talking to God, telling him exactly how I felt. I just poured out all my fear, frustration, and anger at God. And as well, I think it is important to note, the last line is actually far more hopeful than people realize on first reading. How can I make sense of a father who cursed his own son? Son, I have to make sense of this. We have to make sense of this. Our entire faith is built on this. I'm not cursed. It is Jesus who is. Galatians 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Later in chapter 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And in 2 Corinthians God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God loved me so much that he cursed Jesus, his son, so that I might live and live in freedom, that I might be called his son, a child of God. This poem is also riddled with misplaced shame. I had to repent of this because on the other side of my shame was pride and arrogance. You see, for me, I believed the lies that I was fed as a kid, that being gay was a curse, the worst, and in that sense, I was a homophobe, and worse still, I took that homophobia and I visited upon the one unworthy, irredeemable homosexual that I knew, myself. I had this pride that somehow I got to decide what was forgiven and what wasn't, and on my unforgivable list was me, because I was gay. I don't get to decide what God forgives and what he doesn't. I don't get to limit God. I'm going to finish up in a minute by rereading, rereading the first poem, No One. But I need to tell you how this one came about, this poem. On the 28th of February, 2019, we got notice as a house we were being kicked out as a landlord wanted to sell. And this broke me. I felt powerless. I felt abandoned by God. I tried to honor him for a few years and how I lived my life, dedicating myself to following his rules and sexuality and trying to, yeah, understand that. And, and here I was about to be kicked out of my house and I was devastated. It was the last straw. So I went to God. I felt cursed by God. I, even con I couldn't even control where I lived. I felt abandoned by him. I accused him of betraying me and being unable or unwilling to keep his promises. 
I actually begged him to acknowledge that he had cursed me. I demanded that he have the courage to admit to me that I wasn't part of his family, that I wasn't a son, that I was irredeemable, and that at least we could move on. But all I got was silence. And I remember saying he was the Teflon God. Nothing would stick. The more and more angry that I got, the more and more infuriated I got, it just didn't land. And then there was a fit of rage I had, and I said to him, and another thing, your church... And I remember the floodgates opening. (laughs) Every hit I took on the church landed. Every accusation of betrayal, hurt, pain, abandonment that I tried to level that God had nothing to do with him. It was his people that had hurt me. His church that had failed. Failed to love. And God was right there with me. I felt his wrath and anger at his church who had deeply wounded me and countless others. And I was terrified by his wrath at those that will have to answer to him for their lack of love in this issue. And it was this experience that I was able to sit down and write and craft into the poem, Known. So I'm going to read it again. Known. An innocent child condemned by the hypocrisy of a hollow grace that took generations of fear and misunderstanding to create. A child disfigured by this poisonous theology. One that abandoned love and embraced hate. A child forced to retreat into the darkness until he purged the secret perversion that existed deep within. A childhood stolen, and instead this boy forced to become a warrior against his own unforgivable sin. A child starved of hope and made to believe his debt was the only one that could not be paid. A son stripped of his inheritance, taught that love did fail and that grace could be betrayed. Just a boy to be erased, another nameless victim in this crusade of hate. But this child of God is no longer controlled by shame, and I refuse for that to be my fate. Consider this my reawakening. I cannot be erased, and I will not be denied. This is an anthem of celebration. I am no mistake, and I will no longer hide. This scarred warrior is emerging from the shadows with a righteous rage that cannot be contained. God will judge those who cause this child to stumble, for their hands are blood-stained. I will be known, and my inheritance is secure. It was never yours to withhold. My hope restored as my scarred beauty is revealed and my glorious story is told. Known. The passage today is all about love, where we have failed to love. We need to repent of that, and we need to love. The passage finishes. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Wow, well done, Tim. Tim's just demonstrated a freedom most of us don't have, hey? What a wonderful story, but it's a story of what God is doing. And as I said, I'm sure there's all kinds of emotions as you listen. And it's been an absolute privilege for me to be part of that journey for the last five years. And some of you just got brought into the journey of what God is doing. So maybe there's sadness and grief as you listen. Maybe there's joy and hope. Maybe there's gratitude and and just feeling humbled. Maybe you're confused and fearful. Maybe you're overwhelmed and in awe in a good or a bad sense or or, or a frightening or a positive sense. However you feel, however you you think at this stage, there's nothing better than, than coming to God now in song. Tim uses poetry, we can use song to express um, our thoughts and our emotions. And, and remember that it is about what God has done for him and for all of us. And we're going to sing a song that talks about being surrounded by the song of God, of deliverance from enemies, of our fears going, 
of no longer being a slave, but a child, that we are known in our mother's womb, that he has chosen us, and that love has called us, that we've been born again into a family, that the blood flow, that we've been so adopted that it's as if his blood flows through our veins, that we're surrounded by the arms of the Father, uh, that we've been liberated from bondage, that we're sons and daughters, and that we sing because of our freedom. And then picking up on this amazing story of redemption all through the scriptures back to the parting of the Red Sea. It says, you split the sea so I could walk right through it. My fears were drowned in perfect love. You rescued me and I will stand and sing. I am a child of God. So I want us to come. And, and if you don't know Jesus, this is what Jesus can do. He can set us free in such a way uh, that, that we can sing with such joy. Uh, even though there's things in our hearts that are, that are still challenging for us. So do you want to stand? I'm going to pray. And then I want us to sing as redeemed children of God with full gusto and, uh, and to experience the love that God has for each of us. So let me pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've known Tim since his mother's womb, that you've chosen him and you've called him. And for those of us that have put our faith in Jesus like Tim has, we can be born again into your family, that our fears no longer need to dictate us, that there's deliverance from our enemies and there's a song that surrounds us. And I pray now, Lord, for each of us, whatever the fears we have, they might be drowned in perfect love and we would stand and sing that we are children of God. We thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. we hear a story like that it suddenly makes us realize I guess how well known we are and whether our fears have been drowned in perfect love and so here's a moment this is why it's God's voice to us not just it's God's work to us as well as Tim just for a moment what are the fears that you have that you think it couldn't possibly be drowned in love and you've just heard Tim saying no they can be and where are you not known? Where are you keeping things in darkness? Because you feel that that's going to be easier, but it actually doesn't help you inside. And whether today or just you make a decision today that you will be known. Because being known is a place of freedom and joy and, and hope. So let me pray again before we sing this song. Just to, again for ourselves to, to think, what is God saying to us? Lord, I just pray for all of us. I pray for myself. Lord, that we might know the freedom that Tim has shown and talked about. That the fears we have for the future, the fears we have about ourselves, the fears we have about being known would be drowned in perfect love. And the redemption that you have accomplished in Jesus to make us your children, assure us of your love, guarantee us an eternity, and the spirit that you've sent within us to shed abroad the love of Christ in our hearts would be so real that we can be known and we can come out of darkness and come out of shame and know that Jesus, you covered that shame, that you were cursed so we could be made children, that you became sin so we could receive your righteousness. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. And I pray that we would live more in the good of it and we'd celebrate it more. So I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for myself and I pray for those that don't know you here today, that you draw all of us nearer to you. Amen.
So, Father, as uh, you call us, each of us, to, in a sense, the analogy of walking on the waters, as Peter came to you, and he was able to, and then he looked at the waves and the wind and started to sink as his own fears, his own insecurities, his own perspective took over. I pray you teach us by the Spirit to walk on the waters and not let the fears and the waves and the wind and the noise of this world the, and the, 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 the whispering of the devil and the, the culture around us cause us to sink. But keep our eyes on you. And as we do, Lord, walk by faith and not by sight until the day when we see you and we know you and we're complete fully and we know even as we are fully known. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Tim uh, is very kindly said he'd just do a little bit of a Q&A with us to finish today's service. So I'm going to invite you back up, Tim. Um, just we thought it'd be good. Uh, we haven't got long to do it all now, and, and we'll have more opportunities at different points. Just to think how as a church, Christ City Church, but the church can get better at this, uh, at, a, at a sort of welcoming, accommodating, and helping uh, people to be known. So Tim, tell us, just what are the lessons for us as a church, and how can we do a good job at loving and knowing everyone? That's a great, yeah, I think that's a great question. I think yeah, in terms of language and different things, I think what, to my shame, you know, I mentioned it there, you know, I grew up in that arena where, a very conservative arena where homosexuality was seen as this other and un, unforgivable thing. And I think growing up from day one, uh, when we were in primary school, if you got extra homework, it was, that was gay. You know, language has changed now, but I do remember that. And I absorbed all of that negativity and that word became so powerful. And who would think that out on a playground as a five, six-year-old describing getting extra homework as gay, being damaging, but that was an incredibly damaging experience for me. So I think, I think that, that is language. Language is so powerful. It, it reveals where our heart is and, it, and it, you know, it reveals what we've been taught and what we believe. So, um, and I think as well, I think, you know, I, I saw a little bit of glimpse of God's wrath to his church as a whole in, in terms of church leadership that for whatever, you know, I talked about those generations of mistrust and whatever. Um, I saw his wrath around this issue and, and I shudder to think my own blind spots and my own language that I use around things that I'm not passionate about or, or ignorant of or haven't really taken the time to care about. And I don't know people and I don't always fully know them and I probably say stuff insensitively all the time. So I think it's a real warning around our own language around you don't know people, you need to get to know them. And as you get to know them, you can love them better and you can realize actually my language is having either a very positive experience or, or, uh, yeah, or a very, very negative without knowing. So in that sense, yeah, roundabout way, language is so important. I've made a thousand mistakes and continue to make them with insensitivities. But I guess the onus is on me then is to know people as well as I possibly can, to learn their story, to listen to what they're saying, and then support them with the language that I use and the, and the care that I have for them. And similarly, and, and you know, there can be a sort of tendency to assume, well, you know, everyone in the end sort of gets married, or that is the sort of culmination of this life, surely. And again, there's often an assumption within Christian, or in the world, yeah. but in Christian circles, you know, that's sort of where we're all heading. And again, how can we as a church realize that celibacy and singleness or is a viable and positive option. As you said, Jesus was, was a fulfilled so, yeah. man. You know, so what, what, what ways can we help there? Yeah, definitely. I think the church as a whole has probably made a mistake to think that and have pressured people into getting married. And then you see these miserable marriages that wouldn't, should never have happened. So I think there's a way to celebrate singleness. Uh, we're told repetitively in the Bible that it's a great thing, that it's a gift. And, and often it's not seen as a gift. It's seen as something to endure until you get the better gift of marriage. And it might 
not be that case. Maybe it is the best gift for you. So uh, I think there's, yeah, it's changing that perception of singleness is not something to be endured at times. It's, it, it can be a beautiful gift that enables you to do many things in many different ways. And similarly, so, but there are some challenges as singles, yeah, particularly in our culture where okay, there is yeah. an almost assumption. So how have you learned or how can we get better at handling the, you know, marriage or finding a romantic partner yeah. isn't the only route in life. There's a really positive yeah, and viable yeah. option in singleness. And That's yeah. yeah, perfect. Sorry. Yeah, and I think that is true. And I think, uh, I think that is down to friendship and down to community, which is so unbelievably important. When I went into that research phase, I read books, like I said, from both sides that argue that. Those that argued um, that God blessed same-sex relationships, they kind of deconstruct the, the passages in the Bible that talk about homosexuality as not being positive. But what they also did for me, which was far more important, was they completely and utterly diminished friendship as being an important relationship. And I just fundamentally don't believe that to be true. Friendship is a beautiful gift that is actually even more powerful sometimes than defined relationships like marriage where there's an oath by the very nature of the fact that it's fluid and can, can end at any point and can continue forever in that sense. So friendship is this undefined relationship that is so powerful and is God's gift to us all to have community. So for me, uh, yeah, I can find my community and my fulfillment and all that intimacy and love and, and care and attention met by a variety of different people who, who I'm so lucky to call my friends. When we think about prayer, prayer is a moment where we express our desires to mm -hmm. God. And, um, you know, we've all heard or at least maybe been in connection with those sort of stories where, well, if you find someone that's a Christian and with same-sex attraction, then we must pray for them, that their attraction changes. Mm. What should we pray? Yeah, I think I've been asked that a lot. And also at times I've told people what to pray, and that's maybe not necessarily fair. Um, because people can pray for me how they wish, I guess. For me... That is a really dangerous game that I maybe tried to play at the start, which was if I started to acknowledge that I wanted my attractions to, to change, I was praying for that, and other people were praying for that for me. That didn't help, and that really damaged me more. And it, was, it, was, it felt like you're going down a rabbit hole that just never ends. I think for me, out of this whole experience and every life-changing thing for anyone, you want to grow closer to God. And that's what I want. I want that for everyone. I want to, for, for everyone to know Jesus better than they did the day before. And so I don't necessarily... I certainly wouldn't promote it for myself, but I've also learned that I can't control what people get to pray for for me. But I think for everyone, we want to know Jesus better, and I think that's an amazing thing to pray for. The other thing is, uh, like, I'm not in control of what happens next. There's many people in my position who have found fulfilling uh, heterosexual marriages, and those are beautiful things, and every marriage has challenges. <laughs> That's an extra obstacle, but it's certainly not an uncomeoverable obstacle um, at all, if that's the right word, you know. It's, it's you know, that's the reality. So every, every marriage has, so there's, there's all these different avenues. So I don't know, um, you know, it's not for me to say that. But in terms of for me, prayer, as my prayer would be for everyone, is that they get to know Jesus better. Great. Uh, you got a few books just to recommend if people want to read more. Do you want to yeah, very take, much us, so. take so, us through some of those I've books? I've gone through that one, uh, ones, yeah. Let me see. You recommended two in the yeah, talk. Yeah, recommended two. Sorry, I just had a few books. There we go. So. That wasn't at all scripted, was it? No, did no. That? But anyway, I think, I think I, maybe I'll just leave it with one because okay. that's maybe a bit easier. But this one is probably the best book I've ever read in terms of, like, the church and the church's response. And it's The Plausibility Problem, it's called, and it's called The Church and Same-Sex Attraction. But basically, I think what it does is puts the onus back on the church. And the reality is, for so many of people in my position, they've made different decisions to me. 
but we can easily just be like, oh, I can't believe they did that. No, 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 there's a huge amount of responsibility on the church, and the church makes it far, far more difficult for people to be single than they should, and they make that, and that's an extra level of pressure on people who uh, are single and gay and feel that they can't find any of that relationship or intimacy met in different ways. So I think in that sense, for a church, I, I couldn't recommend this book enough, and actually there's one other one that I also really love. Um, this was probably the most helpful for, book for me in terms of emotionally. It's called Space at the Table. It's between a, two men, a, a father and a son. Um, a, the father is a uh, Christian pastor in America who believes that same-sex, uh, there shouldn't be same-sex relationships. And his son is a gay son who has left the church and fully, you know, endorses the gay lifestyle. And they come together at this place called the Space at the Table, and they describe and they show such love for each other despite having completely and utterly opposing views. So that, for me, is probably number one in terms of emotionally, and that also helped me write Known. That really got me into a space where I really started to acknowledge my own childhood. Well, uh, I'm going to answer my own question. Here's a book I want to recommend. <laughs> <laughs> I've just finished it. Well, I'm like about a few chapters away from finishing because I knew we had this coming up. So Ed Shaw is uh, writing a lot of good books on singleness and same-sex attraction. That's the plausibility problem. He's written one, a couple more. And then Sam Albury, you quoted him already, but yeah. he's written a book which is getting just at the end of 2019 called Seven Myths About Singleness. So it's not just for those with same-sex attraction, for, for, for the gift of singleness and how do we think about singleness and the myths. And it is brilliant, brilliant book, and he talks a lot about the problems of marriage. <laughs> so uh, it's an in un un insurmountable problems, as you say. So uh, yeah, he, it's a great book. I'd highly recommend, uh, highly recommend that book.